Welcome to this episode of Anesthesia on Air, the podcast from the Royal College of Anesthetists. My name is Benjamin Blaise. I'm a consultant paediatric anesthetist at the Evelina London Children's Hospital, Gars and St Thomas's NHS Foundation Trust, and a honorary senior lecturer at King's College London. Hi, I'm Sonia Akrimi. I'm a senior registrar in anaesthetics, and I've recently finished my advanced paediatric training at the Evelina. And today, we would like to talk about the effects of general anaesthetics on the developing brain. So, Ben, we're going to start this podcast off by speaking a little bit about the clinical challenges that paediatric anaesthetists face when considering the potential neurodevelopment complications of anaesthesia during the neonatal period or during infancy. Are you able to start us off by talking a little bit about what the problem is when thinking about this? So as a paediatric anaesthetist, we still find that we have these unanswered questions that are central to our practice. What do I do on the brain of the little patients that I anaesthetize? And the idea of the podcast is to try to bring some information on the background to discuss some of this literature. And we are really lucky to be joined by Professor Andrew Davidson a bit later in this podcast that will answer a lot of questions especially on the gas trial. Thank you very much. I look forward to that. Perhaps before we think about the clinical research, shall we talk a little bit about the main anaesthetic drugs that we use and their mechanisms of action? So what we were really talking about uh, are the uh, hypnotics. So either the gases that we use or the uh, IV drugs. And obviously this is a really complex system. Um, how are uh, neurons are talking to each other and our anaesthetics can uh, inhibit that. Um, if we look at the brain and if we really, really simplify things, um, you know, we've got synapses that are the connection between our neurons and you've got some information that is traveling along these neurons going to the synapse as an electrical impulse. And the synapse is going to transform this electrical impulse into a chemical message that is going to cross the synaptic cleft and then will be um, integrated on the other side to either decide if it has to carry on or it should be stopped. Um, and the anesthetic drugs are targeting the receptors in the synapse to block this message. And our drugs are going to interfere with this system. So that's why we're talking about NMD antagonist or GABA agonist. Ketamine is the example of NMD uh, antagonist, and the uh, propofol is a good example of GABA agonist. And the sevoflurane or the gas are usually a bit of a mix of these two. So what the ketamine is going to do is going to prevent the glutamate to go on the other side of the NMD receptor, and that's going to inhibit the system. And the GABA agonist uh, reinforce the the activity is going to be to reinforce the effect on the GABA receptor, also blocking, inhibiting the system. So this is how it works. The problem that we have in the developing brain is that the biochemistry is a bit different than in the adult brain. And we've got a few elements that are basically going to play a bit around. And uh, what we know from the adult brain can't be just transferred to the young ones. For instance, there's something called the GABA shift. In the young ones, the GABA system can become also excitatory, 
So basically, you've got neurons firing on both sides of the glutamate and the GABA, and our drugs are not exactly doing what we what we think they're doing. And describing all of that, the main problem that we have is that uh, in the 90s, some people anesthetized some baby rats, and they look at slices of their brain after being anesthetized, and they show a widespread neuroapoptosis, so a low destruction of neurons in the brain. And that raised the alarm that there was a problem and that we need to investigate a bit more what's going on to make sure that we're not putting children at risk. Thank you very much. We'll talk a little bit about adult models in a second, but I might just keep you on um, what you were saying about the differences between the neonatal brain and the adult brain with respect to how anaesthetic drugs work. Um, is there anything else to add to that? So uh, th there are a few things. So I, I mentioned the GABA shift and the, and, the, and the fact that the GABA system is not working exactly as it is working in the adult. We also know that the blood-brain barrier is a bit leaky in young children and basically more exposed to whatever can come from the blood, a higher concentration in the brain and potentially toxicity there. Um, we, we know that the uh, ketamine, for instance, um, interacts with different receptors and some of them uh, are neuroprotective in adults, uh, but again, their concentration in children and their positioning on the system is just a bit different. And the action of ketamine on these specific receptors inhibit the plasticity of uh, the uh, neurons. So all these elements have been shown to um, basically not act as we expect them to act in an adult brains and doing some different things in the children and potentially deleterious effect on the children. So these are the, the main concerns. And you can, uh, I didn't mention the sevoflurane, but sevoflurane is thought to be um, quite efficient in the uh, developed brain as well uh, to uh, to, to protect the brain with a decrease of the uh, inflammatory cytokine activities um, with the interaction with some proteins that will uh, support cellular survival um, with the reduction of pro-apoptotic protein and the increase of anti-apoptotic proteins. And what you see as well in that in the developing brain, you have the exact opposite effect. So at the start, the research was mostly done on uh, rats and rodents and uh, they, they showed that you had some uh, cellular morphological, histopathological behavioral differences. And obviously the, the research has also evolved towards more complex models and models that are closer to us. And these effects were, um, or similar effects were uh, seen in um, uh, non-human primates as well. Okay, it sounds like these um, animal models have given us some important questions that we've been able to then go on to try to answer or partly answer in human studies. What do we at this stage know about um, the possible implications on children's neurodevelopment about if they underwent anaesthesia during the neonatal period? In the recent years, um, we had three main cohorts that were really important. Uh, one is called PENDA, uh, and they, they looked at siblings and how they would develop one being exposed to anesthesia the other wouldn't be and basically what they realize is that you had a bit of an increase of emotional and behavioral problems in these uh, children that were exposed to anesthesia and um, 
the other cohort is called the mask cohort mask sorry cohort and they had um they found the same increase in emotional and behavioral problems and also an increase in the in problems associated with executive functions um so th these are the kind of two elements that were pointed out and it might be that uh, our intelligence pure intelligence is not affected by anesthetics but that other elements uh, could be uh, uh, affected again there's no proof about that is it's just uh, some results uh, extracted from these cohorts um and, and finally uh, there is a court from the uk that looked prospectively at children exposed to multiple anesthetics and they looked at really specific markers such as dynamic balance uh, social communication scores uh, manual dexterity performance and they they realized that these elements were a bit affected in the children that were exposed to multiple anesthetics um, so this these are the results of the main cohort and obviously um, the main uh, research that has been published recently is the gas trial that we will discuss pretty soon with uh, prof davidson and the gas trial is, is really the most robust methodological study we have on the subject and uh prof will be way better than me at explaining the importance of its results well i'm looking forward to us talking about the gas trial perhaps just to summarize this section before we go on to that trial what do you as a paediatric anaesthetist think that we can take from the studies that we have so far prior to the gas trial and um, with our practice to support our practice so uh, i think we should have a, a reassuring message that there is clearly a difference between what was seen in rodents years ago with widespread neurodegeneration like entire slices of brain being uh, destroyed by the exposure to anesthetics and what we observe in the human population but i think uh, we're here to give the best of care so our duty is to deliver the safest anesthetics when a child needs procedure our duty is to carry on this research and try to investigate if there's a neurotoxicity what the mechanisms of this toxicity could be if some children should be followed up in terms of neurocognitive outcome especially if they have all the risk factors that were identified in the cohort and uh, yeah hopefully design some new neuroprotective strategy uh, that could help us optimise uh, the care of uh, the children uh, we've got on our lists. Thank you very much. Let's go on now and talk about the GAS trial and any research that is there ongoing at the moment to find out whether or not we have any more depth to answering those important questions. Thank you. Thank you. Today I'm joined by Professor Andrew Davidson He's a senior staff anaesthetist at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne. He is the editor-in-chief of Pediatric Anesthesia and an executive editor for Anesthesiology. He trained in anaesthesia in Melbourne, Rotterdam, Mansfield and Boston. Welcome, uh, Andrew, and thank you for joining us today. You're welcome. Pleasure to be here. So the plan for this uh, second bit of the podcast is to discuss the uh, amazing work you've been leading on the gas trial and uh, get a bit more insight uh, on this on this work. 
Um, so I say the, the first easy question would be, could you summarize the gas trial for us? So the, in the gas trial, we randomized about 700 children to either a wake regional or general anesthesia for inguinal hernia repair in early infancy. And then we followed them up at two years and five years with a variety of neurodevelopmental measures. And the primary outcome was IQ because that's a very robust outcome measure and one that is quite important for a child's future development. And we found no evidence for a difference between the two groups in the primary outcome and most of the secondary outcomes. And am I right to say that um, it is the first time that we have a multi-centre international randomised control trial looking at this issue of neurocognitive development following exposure to anaesthesia? It's, it's uh, certainly the first trial which has been completed looking at neurodevelopmental outcomes after anaesthesia. Uh, it's one of the first big uh, sort of multinational projects in paediatric anaesthesia, which was were quite exciting. And it was really good to see that people from all corners of the globe could all work together on this particular project. I think that was the most exciting part of it. I can imagine that it has been a lot of work to set up uh, and to get it running, but yeah, really, really uh, interesting uh, results eventually that you managed to gather. Um, is there any Limitations, are there any limitations with the with this trial you can think of? What what would you say for? Oh, oodles of limitations, which have been endlessly pointed out to me over the years. The <laughs> Firstly, the anaesthetic exposure is only about one hour, and the majority of kids in early infancy only have about an hour or less of anaesthesia, but there are children who have longer exposure, and some of the preclinical evidence and some of the cohort evidence may suggest it's the longer exposures are the ones that we should worry about the most. Similarly for cumulative exposures with multiple exposures. Secondly, we followed them up to about the age of five, and there are some aspects of executive function or behavioral development, which you can't really assess until the children are older, but it, it just becomes logistically extremely difficult to follow up kids who are older. So. I guess the biggest limitation is it was a brief exposure, and the second limitation was that we couldn't do a complete neurodevelopmental assessment of these children. So it's it's really interesting that you're mentioning that because um, it's true that when you look at the design of the gas trial, obviously you use, you use the Wexler scale, which is the kind of gold standard recognised by uh, neuropsychologists to measure IQ, and this long follow-up that you managed to achieve on this scale is is quite amazing. Um, and when you look at the uh, secondary results of the gas trial, especially on the score, they called the brief P score that basically look at inhibition, working memory, shifting, planning, organizing or emotional control. There seems to be a bit of a difference some some people are saying there is a difference. But and and what is quite surprising to me is that from a statistical point of view, when you look at that, the difference is not for me is not really there, so I wanted to have a, a bit more discussion with you about that that aspect. That that opens up all sorts of rabbit holes we could go down. First of all, okay. it was an equivalence trial, and we, if you put the bounds of equivalence of about a third to a half of standard deviation, which is what the clinically significant, then the ninety five percent 
bounds of all the outcomes were pretty much within those equivalence bounds. So you could say, even though the 95% confidence interval crossed zero or one or whatever, it still didn't cross the bounds of a difference. So you can justifiably make the conclusion of equivalence. I know that all sounds like statistical gobbledygook, but it basically means there might have been a statistically significant difference, but it was clinically insignificant. Uh, but even that isn't correct because it, we weren't looking for a statistically significant difference. We were looking for equivalence. Um, another way, uh, another interesting aspect is if you look at multiplicity, and we had about 20 different outcomes. And if you assume that they're all independent measures, which they probably aren't, but if you did, then you'd expect at least one of them to cross to be statistically significant just by pure maths. So, you, I mean, to be a real, you know, cat amongst the pigeons, you could say, if we didn't find any that were not statistically significant difference, you could say, oh, there's something dodgy in the results because we'd expect at least one purely by the maths. So it's a long-winded answer to say, well, results in clinical research are always far more difficult to interpret than a simple yes there is or no there isn't and that that's that's why i love clinical research it, it, it's so complex and so difficult to interpret i agree with you um what i find really interesting as well is um going back to the wexler scale if you look at the scores that were seen in your in your two groups they are actually really similar to the, what you would see in a general population that is not exposed to anesthesia um, so yeah. I, I personally found that also really, really interesting. Just there's no stats in there, but it's just a, a clinical feeling that oh. basically you only has a lot of children that didn't show any problem eventually. Yeah, well, that even that is sort of subtly interesting because it was the means were slightly less than 100 and the mean in the population is 100 and ours were a little bit less. Uh, you That would be consistent with these are kids who are having hernia repair and some of them are slightly prem. So you'd expect perhaps the mean to be slightly lower. But then it's also interesting because the the real mean, even though it's supposed to be 100, is not 100 because we're getting smarter. And by the time you validate the score, the actual score in the population is more than 100. So even though 100 is the normalised score, if you did a, if you just got a whole bunch of British kids and you measured them, their average IQ would be slightly more than 100 because they're getting slowly smarter and smarter it's, it's 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 a fascinating area the sort of neuropsychology and neurodevelopmental outcome no, it is I agree with you um but moving on a bit away from the stats otherwise we're going to lose a few people in the audience i'm afraid um <laughs> <laughs> bit of another question uh, so it would be if, if parents were asking you about the long-term neurocognitive risk for their children what, what what would you tell them on the morning of the surgery if it was just just like that out of the box yes that's the that's the doozy that's the doozy question um uh, you do occasionally get asked that and i think i have to tell the anecdote i my own child had to have anesthesia once and uh the ent surgeon leant forward to me and said you do realize that anesthesia is associated with a risk of poor neurodevelopmental outcome to which I said, the only time ever in my life I've said, do you know who I am? <laughs> so, 
So yes, it is it is something which is asked and it is something which parents think about. I must admit, I actually did myself think about, am I doing the right thing? And so what should we say? Uh, I think the first thing is that parents have, uh, they're not foreign to the idea of drugs having an impact on development. So these are young kids, newborns, first year of life. They've gone through the whole pregnancy of avoiding unnecessary medication or stuff because they are attuned to the idea that the environment or medication can have an impact on their child's development. So if you introduce the idea to parents, it's not going to be a shock. It's something that they are going to be familiar with the concept. If you say, like many drugs in pregnancy, you know, there might be some animal evidence or there is some animal evidence, but we have no idea whether it's actually clinically relevant. And you could say the majority of studies show that it's unlikely to be have a substantial impact, but we really don't, we can't really exclude it. And then if you point out, well, the unfortunately, the implications of not having an anesthetic are far greater, then usually most parents will be anxious, justifiably, but I think they've had an honest appraisal of, of the information. And and do you think this is a risk we should communicate a bit more, especially in the information leaflets, for instance, that are sent to parents? Ours at the moment are not really mentioning this risk or something. So, uh, I, so my personal opinion, and this is very much my personal opinion as an anaesthetist, is that no, it shouldn't. I, I completely respect those who have different opinions and think that it should. Uh, everyone, if you just even look at your colleagues, they all differ enormously in what information they give to parents. And you tailor it according to the parent, according to the procedure. It, there's no one rule that fits all. If there are some, if parents ask me, I'm very happy to discuss it. Um, if not, no. We, we did have, at the risk of another humorous anecdote, after the gas trial, I was anaesthetizing one child and the, the mother asked me, uh, is it, uh, she just said two things. One is, is it possible to avoid general anesthesia? And I'm a lawyer. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I said no and noted it. So. Fair enough. Um, so after these considerations, obviously we might be thinking about um, procedures that are longer uh, than just one hour and other drugs that we could use. And I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about your ongoing research um, on, uh, on uh, these aspects. So the, I guess you're alluding to, well, there's various areas of ongoing research. I think there are, there is a need for more in-depth cohort studies that examine the risk factors that are associated with poor outcome in children who have major surgery early in life. And children who have tracheoesophageal fistula repairs, diaphragmatic hernias, exomphalus repairs, there's reasonable amount of evidence that for whatever reason, they're at risk of poor outcome. Uh, we don't know why, and there's all sorts of reasons, maybe nothing to do with anaesthetic toxicity, but they deserve greater research and they deserve a better understanding of how to provide optimal anaesthetic care for these children who are at high risk, who have big operations in early in life. And it may be anaesthetic toxicity is only a small part of that, but there could be other stuff. So putting a, aside that important area of inquiry, if you look at just anaesthetic neurotoxicity, 
I think there is a need to try to understand in the cohort studies what patterns are emerging, bearing in mind that you can never really exclude neurotoxicity. You can't, it's impossible to exclude the possibility that something might exist. So what you can do is sort of generate more evidence that it's less and less likely to exist in certain populations. So I think there is a need for bigger, better cohort studies to sort of identify any associations, bearing in mind there will always be confounding, which will always make it difficult to unpick, is it the surgery, is it the comorbidity, or is it the anesthesia? Uh, there is room for trials. Uh, and trials should ideally be conducted when you've got a pretty plausible treatment, which would be better than the standard of treatment. And the problem there is it is a little difficult to say what is the a plausible and feasible anaesthetic which would be better than the anaesthetic which may or may not be causing a problem. So it's tricky. We are doing the T-Rex trial, which is comparing standard dose sevoflurane versus low dose sevoflurane and dexmedetomidine. Uh, that's it was called the T-Rex trial because we wanted to kill the issue, but we soon discovered it certainly wasn't going to kill the issue. Some people think T-Rex stands for toxicity, remifentanil, dexmedetomidine, but it doesn't. It was like going to be the killer trial, but uh, that was a, a false hope. All it does is add a little bit more information about what actually might be going on. And there is some reason to believe that dexmedetomidine may be less toxic or maybe neuroprotective. So it's a plausible hypothesis that it would provide a superior anesthetic as far as neurodevelopment. What I found really interesting and confusing sometimes reading about all these drugs that we're using is that you've got some elements in adults where the drug seems to be neuroprotective or doing something nice. And suddenly you look at the equivalent in kids and you're just like, oh my God, this is actually not doing <laughs> the same thing at all. And that's where I think the importance of researching pediatric anaesthetics is as well. We can't just rely on whatever is found by adults and it's difficult to kind of uh, transfer whatever yes. is observed into uh, the younger groups that we're taking care of. Um, so we just to about this potential new drug. So if you could, if you were taking care of a young ASA1 child uh, coming for a simple procedure, under general anaesthetic, what, what would be the best protocol for you to use? And obviously you can block whatever you want. <laughs> you can do whatever you want. You should use, you should use whatever you're most familiar with. I mean, you, we, we've all anaesthetized small children, neonates and infants, and it, it's, 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 uh, it's not a walk in the park. It, it is, it is something which is challenging and I would, I would seriously discourage anyone from changing the practice which they have found provides safe, effective care for the child. So my advice would be do whatever you feel most comfortable with doing. Especially, I know that's a cop out, but that's... <laughs> no, but I would say, I imagine especially with complex children or in emergency situation, we should rely on the drugs that are providing the hemodynamic yes. respiratory stability that we need to make sure that the journey, the surgical journey goes well. I, I do think, if you want to push me further, I do think there's probably a greater role for uh, opiate-based anesthesia rather than 
uh, volatile based anesthesia or propofol based anesthesia. I think we have a we still have a fairly incomplete idea about what we're aiming to achieve when we're anesthetizing a neonate. And if we extrapolate from what we do in an adult where you know you give a a block, some opiate and a MAC of volatile, then I don't think that translates perfectly to neonates. And I th I think there is room for sort of innovation and careful thought about what is the most appropriate anaesthetic for a neonate, completely independent to the neurotoxicity. I think we we suffer from transferring the, uh, originally we said, oh, nobody anaesthetized the neonate. We just did what they did in Liverpool, which was give them nitrous and a bit of curare. That probably wasn't true, but that's the myth. And then we've gone the other way where we treat them all like little adults and we have to give them a what we'd give an adult. And I think perhaps we need to rethink what is the best way to anaesthetize a neonate. And so every time I, if I ever anaesthetize a neonate, if I have a fellow or a registrar, I always say, well, what are we aiming to do? What are we, you know, how much do we give? Why are we giving it? And it really makes them think, which I think is a good thing. And, and I think there's also, I mean, you were, you were mentioning the opioids and I think there's also a, a quite large literature about how our opioid receptors are changing, evolving, yeah. and how the different molecules uh, can have different effects. So I think that that'd be a, yeah, a, a big research field um, that we'll need to investigate. Um, so if we go back a bit in time, obviously there was this big um, advice from the FDA saying we shouldn't anesthetize any non-emergent child before the age of three at some point. And they, they were obviously amending this, uh, this recommendation. Um, but so we're trying to think, should, should we be delaying non-emergent surgery in young children, children below one? Is there like a threshold after which we should be confident that, you know? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. I think surgeons, when I trained a very long time ago, there was a general sort of cutoff at one and 10 kilos. And under that, people thought really carefully about whether they should do the surgery. And we're sort of completely irrelevant to neurotoxicity. There was a, rec a recognition that, as I said before, anaesthetizing someone who's less than one and less than 10 kilos is not something that you just take for granted. So I think there's an already, there's a mindset that you don't do it if you're less than one unless you really have to do it. And that is sort of nothing to do with neurotoxicity. But neurotoxicity perhaps has just given it a little bit of extra uh, reason to think why you should do it. At the same time, the surgeons have been you know, pushing to say, you know, you operate younger, you get a better result, et cetera, et cetera. I, I once asked a surgeon, is that actually true? And he, he sort of whispered under his breath, not really. But uh, there is, there are surgical reasons for why operating at a younger age may get a better result. So I think that needs to be weighed into it. But should we be delaying it because of our fear of neurotoxicity? No. Is it a discussion that a that you can legitimately or a parent can legitimately raise and make their own decision yes so it's it's true that we always use this kind of one year 10 kilogram cutter for everything like you decide to tube the patient usually based on that you decide to do glycemic control based on that so there are a lot of things that we add on when we when we yeah. get to these two thresholds um so i guess the last question i have now is that um should we should we keep anesthetizing our young children in confidence and be, you know, happy with what we do day after day to 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 um to these little ones. Yes, be must it be alert but not alarmed. Be uh, 
we should certainly keep anaesthetising them. Um, should we be thinking more about how we anaesthetise them, how we best be anaesthetise them? Absolutely. I mean, as paediatric anaesthetists, it's the under ones, which is the really challenging ones where we have the least research, the least knowledge about what we should be doing and what the impact of what we're doing. If you're a paediatric anaesthetist and you want a career in research, a very difficult career in research, then it's the under ones, which are the, they're, they're the really interesting ones. Yes, we should continue to be anaesthetizing them, absolutely. But we should also be focusing our academic sort of curiosity and innovation in that age group, because they're probably the ones that would benefit the most from it. And that may be completely unrelated to neurotoxicity. Uh, and in terms of the um, the children that we expose to, and I think that really at risk, let's say the really young or or the one with repetitive exposures, um, is there a room at some point to say maybe we should kind of organise a clinical follow up of these kids from a neuropsychological point of view uh, to make sure that we can offer some anything to so, support them? So many tertiary children's hospitals around the world routinely offer neurodevelopmental assessment for neonates who have major surgery. Uh, that's uh, once again, it may not be anything to do with neurotoxicity, but there's a recognition that neonates who go to NICU, spend a couple of weeks there, have a major surgery, are at risk of poor outcome. So partly for academic reasons, but also partly for clinical reasons, many centres routinely follow up neonates who have major surgery. I, I don't think you need to follow up the, the term hernia repair and 30 minutes of anaesthesia. I, I don't think that's of any value to anyone. But the the major surgery in neonates, I think there's an increasing move towards a routine neurodevelopmental follow-up. And um, is there any uh, evidence that for uh, the uh, children exposed to multiple anaesthetic, there is also an anxiety effect uh, just coming to the hospital, just going through all this process again, and that this anxiety could have an impact on their neurodevelopment? Uh, so a, a marginally plausible hypothesis, I'd politely say. So, okay. Yes, but the impact of chronic disease and multiple, ex, multiple admissions in children is real and is uh, significant. If it has an impact on neurodevelopment, uh, I, I'm not an expert in that area. But yes, the we do, I was being flippant before. Yes, children who have chronic disease, who have multiple admissions to hospital, they are at risk of uh, neurodevelopmental follow-up. They're at risk of requiring care neurodevelopmentally. I think what I wanted to say as well is the, um, the obviously the neurotoxicity is a really fascinating field, but many other factors uh, could be part of the effects that we're observing years and years after yes. exposure to anaesthetics. We are getting to the end of these podcasts produced in collaboration with the Royal College of Anaesthetists. Uh, thank you very much, Prof Davidson, for answering the questions that Sonia and myself prepared on this really hot and interesting subjects of the neurotoxicity of general anaesthetics on the developing brain. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. And if anyone wants to send me comments, disagreements, questions, 
they can find me at andrew.davidson at rch.org.au. So thank you very much. Thank you Cheers. very much for your time. Thank you for listening to Anesthesia on Air from the Royal College of Anaesthetists. Make sure you don't miss out on the latest episodes by clicking subscribe on your favourite podcast platform. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please make sure you give us a review. It helps others find our podcast. If there is a topic you'd like us to cover or you'd like to feature in the podcast, please email podcast at rcoa.ac.uk. And finally, if you would like to access more podcasts, as well as videos, e-learning, webinars, and our program of events and courses, you can find them all online at rcoa.ac.uk forward slash education. We hope to see you again soon. Please note, all views expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals and not those of the Royal College of Anaesthetists.